Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Today's episode is about the meaning of life and universal truths. On this show, we'll be featuring our guest, Neil Donald Walsh. He's written 39 books in contemporary spirituality and its practical application in everyday life. Seven of the nine books in the Conversations with God series have made it to the New York Times bestseller list, with book one remaining on that list for over 134 weeks. His titles have been translated into 37 languages, and his latest book is The God Solution, which we are going to talk about today. And was recently published in December 2020, and he can be reached at neildonaldwalsh.com, and we'll leave that in the show notes. So, Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jasmine. It's lovely to be here, and I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity. Wonderful. So, Neil, can you tell us about how to live as an enlightened being in today's world? No, I can't. <laughs> Because I'm not an enlightened being, and I know that you said in your introduction that your program uh, talks to so-called leading experts, this and that and the other thing. I'm none of those things, and I need to let everybody know who's listening now, in all seriousness, no joking, that I don't consider myself to be a leading expert in anything. But I do think that I'm an ordinary, everyday human being, just like everybody else, who wouldn't claim expertise in, in living as a master or living in an enlightened way. But to be fair to the listener, I did receive information from a source that is available to all of us, the source of wisdom and clarity that lives inside of all of us, that does bring us access to that kind of information. So I don't want anyone to imagine because of the way I was introduced or the question that was asked of me, that I'm walking around the planet living the life of uh, an enlightened master or anyone who's really living in an evolved way. But I, I would agree that I am moving in that direction, that I'm a student on the path, a very humble student on the path, who's made a little progress over the past few years, not as much progress, honestly, as I would like to make, but at least a little progress, and who have learned uh, some things about um, where we're going as human beings and how we can live in the way you've described. Now, you asked me not to make a big issue out of it, but to share with you what I have come to understand. The way to live, um, the kind of life that we were designed to live, is first of all, according to my conversations with God, to understand who we are, that is, to be aware of our true identity. Most people uh, are not really totally clear what their true identity is. That is, are we simply physical entities, like a you know, like a dolphin or a whale, a, a bird in the sky, or a, a small fish in the sea, um, a physical life form? that lives and breathes and then dies, and that's the beginning and the end of it? Or is it possible that we're more than that? Is it possible that we are actually spiritual entities living in a body and having a mind, but that we are not our body and our mind, but that we are spiritual entities 
having a body and a mind. If that's true, if that's really our true identity, then what is the nature of our spiritual self? That is, what are we comprised of? What are we composed of? And, and why are we here for that matter? I mean, it, it's a fair question to ask. And it's the question that I asked God in my conversations. If I really am a spiritual entity, if I really am what people would call a soul, why would I come to this place where nothing is working, where everything is really one big mess in many ways? Why would I come into the physical realm here or on any other planet when I could be free as a bird as a spiritual entity? And the answer that I was given is that I came into physicality in order to complete the agenda of the soul and that the agenda of the soul is the same for everyone. I don't have my agenda and you have your separate agenda and the other person has their separate agenda. But in fact, we all have the same agenda. All sentient beings have the same agenda. And the agenda is to complete our evolutionary process a movement through the becoming of and the experiencing of who we really are. Who we really are, who the soul is, is an individuation of divinity. So to put it in direct and simple terms, my understanding is that the process of life is a process by which all physical life forms are provided the opportunity and the contextual field within which we can announce and declare, demonstrate and fulfill, become and experience our divinity. Mm. And that aspect of divinity that resides within everyone. So the way for me to live uh, the life of an enlightened master or to at least move toward that experience is to first understand what I'm doing here. That's what I'm doing here. I'm here to evolve into the next greatest expression of my true identity. Now, how I do that? I'm told in conversations with God, Yasmin, that the way we do that is by using the events that are arising in our life, the moment-to-moment -moment occurrences in our individual and in our collective experience as tools with which we can step into the full expression and the complete demonstration of who we really are. And in order for that to happen, I, I know you didn't ask for a half hour lecture, but I have <laughs> one more thing to say about that. In order, in order for that to happen, Yasmin, we must be aware of what's called the law of opposites. That is, I can't experience myself as big unless I have learned about small. I can't experience myself as fast unless I've learned about slow. I can't experience myself as light unless I know about dark. So the opposite of what I choose to experience must present itself in my contextual field because it is within that context that I can then know myself, not simply conceptually, but experientially as who I really am. And because that's what's true, the events of life present themselves in the way that they do, allowing us to use that contrasting field as a means by which we can express our true identity. That would be my 
34-minute answer to your 34-second <laughs> question. That's really great. And I have a couple of questions. I actually just want to double click um, on a couple of things that you said because our audience is mainstream. And so, you know, I have accepted this idea that I am absolutely more than just a physical body and I have a spirit. And I think once you acknowledge that, then a lot of the kind of following content makes a ton of sense that we are really here to understand ourselves, to gain perspective, to gain awareness. Um, but for folks who, let's say, you know, the question has come up a lot in my community. Uh, folks have said, well, how do I know that I am a spirit? How do I know that there's more to me than just my physical body? Like, do you have an answer for people like that? Or are you really just speaking to people who have accepted that truth that they, that they are more than just a physical body and a spirit? Most people have experienced their so-called spiritual selves. They're simply calling it something else. If they've been raised in a culture or in an environment in which their spiritual identity has not been explored and has actually been denied, uh, then they might have to find a way for their mind to embrace and accept their true identity. So they will call their spiritual experiences, oh gosh, all, all sorts of names. They'll, they'll, they'll call them an epiphany or a, a sheer, a moment of, of, of genius, a, a brilliant idea, an incredible insight. Even they'll even call it women's intuition, uh, but these are moments when we have uh, no doubt that we have somehow come to understand and to know something that we have no right to know, given our previous life experience. So that information comes from our soul self. It comes from our spiritual self. But unless you've been raised in an environment where such a notion is acceptable, you will call it something else. You'll, you'll just, you know, you, you won't even know what name to give it because you know that you'll be ridiculed within your community for imagining that you are a spiritual self. But um, there's no question of that every human being has had moments when they've experienced their spiritual selves. So the answer to your question is to just not write that off, not just to say, ah, oh, just a coincidence or it just happened that way. It, you know, it's it, it, it sheer luck. It was a stroke of luck uh, or you know, whatever we want to call it. When the spirit of ourselves reveals itself to us. A, a, a typical example of that is when you meet a person that you've never known before or didn't think that you knew before. But all of a sudden, when you're with them for just a moment or two, it feels as if you've known them forever. And most of us have had that experience. Wait a minute. I feel, I don't know why, but I feel like I've known you forever. Mm. Like, like we've, like, and, and, and another example of, of, of the spirit is what I call deja vu, the French phrase that means I have seen this before. Many people have moved through moments in their life when they stop and they say, wait a minute, I've, it feels like I've done all this once before. I mean, you were standing right over there. I was standing over here. You were wearing what you're wearing. We were saying what we're saying. The weather outside was exactly what it is right now. It was raining outside. Every, everything is exactly as it was before. Many, many people have had that experience that the French call deja vu. 
That is because the soul, in fact, has moved through our lifetime more than once. And it is revealing itself to us in those fascinating moments when we experience deja vu. There are many other ways that we experience our spiritual selves as well. A third way is when we suddenly know something that we have no way of knowing. We simply know it because all information, all wisdom, all clarity is embodied in the soul of us, whereas the mind only holds a certain amount of data. So, you know, how can I, uh, what, what would I say to people who ask me, how can I tell that I really have a soul? Just look to your own experience. Watch yourself as you move through the day. Have you ever met someone who you feel you've known for a lifetime? Have you ever had an experience of deja vu? Have you ever suddenly known something you know, that you had no way of knowing before? I'm, I, let me tell you one last story about that. I know a man uh, who told me he was driving down the road early one morning after a party, and he had left the party to go home. It was around 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning. It was a very uh, late party. And he came upon an intersection. I mean, there was nobody on the road. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. And he came to the stop sign, but he started to go again. But suddenly a voice in his mind said, stop. And for no reason at all, he slammed on the brakes, even though it was dark outside and nobody around. And then some teenage driver had just turned the corner about a block away and was racing through that intersection, you know, like only teenagers can do at 75 or 80 miles an hour. And he knows he would not have lived through the accident that was bound to happen if he had not stopped. What told him to stop? What part of him knew that that other driver had just turned a corner a block, a block down the street and was racing through that intersection at 75 or 80 miles an hour? So there are times in our life when we are given direct evidence that we are more than just our body and our mind. But the trick is to not deny our own experience, but to say to ourselves, ah, here we have the evidence that there's more going on here than meets the eye. Mm. Or as Shakespeare wrote in his plays, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Wow. So powerful. And Neil, I want to talk about the contrast that you spoke about uh, as well. You mentioned that we end up experiencing things in our life that will teach us lessons, like specific lessons, um, in order for us to know who we are and in, in order to, I think, expand is what you're trying to get to. So are you also saying that for some people who are maybe living lives of extreme suffering versus others who are living lives of you know, abundance and prosperity that we have some kind of say in that experience? I'm suggesting, first of all, that we're not here to learn anything. So the word lessons uh, is not a word that I heard myself use uh, with respect. It's a word you used. I didn't say anything about lessons okay. because the conversations with God told us that we're not here to learn anything. We are given, however, opportunities when we are confronted with the opposite of what we really are. And that occurs whenever we make a 
decision and a choice about who we are, everything unlike it winds up appearing in our lives, or at least our knowledge of the opposite uh, arises in our awareness so that we can then enter into a contrasting field, the contextual field that allows us to fully experience who we've declared ourselves to be. So life is not about learning lessons. Life is about remembering mm. who we really are and we remember it by encountering that which we are not. Not to teach us a lesson, but to simply give us an opportunity to step into the fullness of what our soul is already clear about regarding our true identity. Uh, got it, makes sense. So Neil, you recently wrote the book, The God Solution, and the two questions that it opens up with, one is, if God exists, why is the world always in such a mess? And the second is, does God play any role in creating, much less fixing things on earth? Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, first of all, the world is in such a mess because God God is not creating uh, the events of life on earth moment by moment, but in fact, God has empowered human beings to do so. It's God's, God's great joy not to create life as if, you know, as if God was a script writer putting together a Hollywood movie. First you have to do this, then you have to do that, then there's this scene, then there's the car accident, then there's the COVID virus, then there's, you know, whatever, as if God was writing a play or writing a movie script. That's, that's not how it works in my understanding. What God has done, though, God's great joy, God's great pleasure, is to give all of the sentient beings in the cosmos, and there is intelligent life on other planets in the cosmos, even if there is none on Earth. But God's joy is to give all sentient life forms the power, and we call that power, by the way, metaphysics, the metaphysical power to manifest. And God gives us the power to manifest collectively and individually the lives that we choose to express and to experience. So when we ask the question, why is the world such a mess? It's the same question, metaphorically speaking, that God might ask us. Yes, indeed, why is the world such a mess? I've given you all the power to make it something other than the mess that you've made it. But in fact, God is uh, uh, giving us uh, a question to, that we could answer ourselves, which is why are we creating life on Earth the way we the way we created? So, so, so the role that God plays in our life, God's not here to um, fix things. God's here to give us the power to fix things, and that's a whole different way of looking at our relationship with the divine. Here we are praying to God, asking God to do stuff. You know, God, please fix this or, or fix that or stop this from happening or fix that. And God is saying just the opposite. God is telling us, no, no, don't ask me to do things. I have given you the power to do things. Just command, that is declare, what it is you want to see occur. Our job is to actually call on God 
with commands, if you could put it that mm. way. And we were even told how to pray. Notice that in the Lord's Prayer, one of the most famous prayers uh, in the world, not everyone is familiar with it, but millions, actually billions of people are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, or what's sometimes called the Our Father. And in the Our Father prayer, we don't make requests. God taught us how to pray. She said, pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. You, you don't see any statement in their prayer that says, please, could you please find a way to give us a little bread today? No. The statement is, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Direct statements, direct commands, declarations, if you please. And that is how we can begin to learn how to use the power of metaphysics to create the God solution. The God solution says we have misunderstood God's role and God's relationship to us for lo these many years. And now it's time for us to change our ideas about God, to change our definition of God, and to change our awareness of our relationship to God if we really want to change the way life is being experienced on this planet. Mm. Wow, I really love that, that uh, we are meant to really ask direct commands of what we want in this life rather than to kind of just, I guess, live a reactive life, which I think most people are doing here on earth. So that's really powerful. So I imagine, Neil, did you use that in your experience to write 39 books, many of them on the New York Times bestseller list? Like, how did you go about commanding the things that you wanted in your life? You know, uh, I, I went even past that because uh, there are no things that I, in particular that I want in my life. God, God, God instructed me in conversations with God to want nothing because the very declaration that you want something causes you to have the experience. If I say, I want more money in my life, God says, that's true, you do. Mm. If I say, I want a companion in my life, God says, that, that is correct, you do. If I say, no, 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 you don't understand. I want a better life. God says, yes, that is what you want. You, you, you do want that. That's correct. Mm. That is correct. So I have stopped wanting things in my life. I don't, I don't, uh, I have also come to the clarity that I don't need anything in particular in my life. I mean, I'm not talking about food, clothing, and shelter, basic human needs in order to survive. But I'm talking about, I don't need any particular condition, situation, circumstance, any particular person in my life without whom I could not survive, any particular kind of a job, any particular level of income. There, there are, I've given up, you know, I've given up the idea that I had before I turned 50, that I need these certain things in order to be happy. So these days, I'm just perfectly content to contribute to life what arises in my own inner desires as opposed to what I want. And what I've desired since I've had my conversation with God is to share all that it has meant to me and all that I understand about it. So yes, I've written 39 books. And the latest, the latest, the 39th book, my final book, is called The God Solution. 
which talks all about these many ideas and which suggests that our liberation from the angry and contentious life that we live with each other on this planet, the end of our alienation that we are experiencing on earth will come to us as part of our experience when we change our definition of God, when we stop thinking of God as a judging, condemning, punishing deity. But that what the God solution suggests is that God really could be defined in two words, pure love. Now, when I tell audiences this, Jasmine, they say, well, there's nothing new there. I thought you were going to come and bring us a new idea. There's nothing new about God being love. I said, wait a minute. I didn't say God is love. I said God is pure love. That's a particular brand, a particular kind of love that human beings rarely practice. Pure love needs, wants, requests, and demands nothing in return. That is nothing. Pure love finds its joy in the expression thereof. And so God's greatest joy is to express love to us, in us, through us, and as us. And God asks for nothing in return which is a direct contradiction of what virtually every major religion on the face of the earth teaches us. Most of those religions teach us, no, you don't understand, Neil, you have to belong to this particular religion. You have to practice these particular rituals. You must do these particular things. You must say these particular prayers. You must act in this particular way. You have to obey, you know, among other things, the Ten Commandments, and so on and so forth. A long list of things that we have to do to stay in God's good graces. Otherwise, God will not grant us our prayers. That is the teaching of most of the world's religions. And if we don't do what God has told us to do, in this little fiefdom that we say God has created. We, we imagine God has created not a wonderful blessed kingdom, but a fiefdom in which we are told what to do. And if we don't do exactly what we're told to do, we will be condemned to everlasting damnation. Now, because this is the God we believe in, we have adopted the same kind of behavior with each other, which is why we are alienated from the person across the street, from the person across town, from a person across the world, and sadly, even sometimes from the person across the room in our own home. I've never seen the level of alienation that I'm seeing these days on earth, Yasmin. Men alienated from women, the rich alienated from the poor, gays alienated from straights, people of color alienated from people whose skin is not colored, you know, conservatives alienated from liberals. It just doesn't stop. We keep on bullying each other, insulting each other, shaming each other, and demonizing each other because of our differences. Because we imagine this is what God does to us. You know what I was, you asked me when I was nine years old, the priest in my Catholic school told us in class, if you don't go to mass on Sunday, without a good excuse. I mean, if you're caring for a sick parent, fair enough. Or if you have to go to work and you can't go to mass at the same time, okay. But if you decide just to go off and play a round of golf 
or to just enjoy yourself at home and not go to mass that Sunday, you will be punished in the fires of purgatory and possibly even combined with other sins you've committed in everlasting damnation in hell for missing mass on Sunday. For, forget about the, the mass. If you're not, if, if suppose you're not even a Christian who goes to mass, supposing that you're a Jewish person or a Buddhist or a Muslim or somebody who belongs to no religion at all, then you're really going to hell. Yep. Wow. You know, it's interesting. I grew up uh, going to both um, Islamic school, Muslim school, and um, and Catholic school, and so. I am very aware of the level of guilt and shame I think that is associated just in general across like some of the major religions. And it always, I've always been very aware also of the level of guilt and shame that I think the collective is holding onto, you know, and it just takes a lot of time to really unwind that. So I'm, I'm curious how you were able to let go of that kind of programming of that kind of shame and guilt. Like how, how do you approach these topics? I, I mean, I've read conversations with God one and two. I haven't gotten to three yet, but I, I know your journey and I think it's so fascinating because I know your life really, really dramatically changed after you wrote Conversations with God. Can you talk about the experience that you went through and maybe ways that the audience can shift their perception to um, to kind of come out of those t those levels of consciousness, right? Because I think they're so pervasive in our culture. Yes, but I'm very sorry to hear. I must begin by telling you that I'm very sorry to hear that you've read books one and two, but have not yet read book three because <laughs> you're going to hell. <laughs> but th that as a, uh, as a given, since you're going to hell anyway, I might as well tell you uh, the rest of the story. Um, I didn't really write the books. The books were given to me in a sense. It was like taking dictation. It was very, very much like that. I would ask a question and then I, the answer would come to me in my mind fully, completely articulated as fast as my hands could take them down. The first several books were handwritten because I wasn't attempting to actually write a book. I thought I was involved in a process that we would call journaling or maybe keeping a diary. It never occurred to me that anyone else would ever see my private journaling, my private spiritual diary. But I was told uh, in what later became book one, you will make of this one day a book and it will be accessed by many people. You know, I thought to myself, there's no way in the world that's going to happen. But this is a perfect test because everything else I had been told in my conversation was theoretical or conceptual in nature. It could be true, could not be true. Who would know? But now here was something I could measure. It had a measurable outcome. I mean, either it would become a book or it wouldn't. And I knew, of course, that nobody, there's not a publisher in the world who's going to publish a book, handwritten notes, by a guy, you know, I could just see the, the publisher stepping out onto the workroom floor, saying to his team of editors, hold the presses, stop everything. We got a guy here who's talking to God. No, of course, it's not going to happen. And I knew it wasn't going to happen. So as a test to make sure that I knew I was right, 
that I was, you know, just having a flight of imagination or that it wasn't really real. I sent my handwritten notes to a small publisher on the East Coast. The rest, as they say, is publishing history. The book sold, I'm not bragging, just noticing, well over a million copies and wound up being translated into 37 languages. Since then, 15 million copies of the Conversations with God books in plural have been sold. And it's uh, unbelievable. The first book wound up being on the bestseller list on the New York Times bestseller list for almost 150 weeks consecutively. That's unheard of for a nonfiction book. Fiction books, sometimes yes. Nonfiction, never. That kind of a run on the bestseller list. So it became a global bestseller. Now, the answer to your question, because I, I wanted to take at least a half hour to answer your, your <laughs> three-minute question. But the answer to your question is how I've been able to overcome my childhood teachings is by listening to how my soul felt when I received the information I was receiving in conversations with God. Was I feeling nervous, scared, upset, worse than ever, worried, filled with anxiety that, oh my gosh, I'm going to go straight to hell because I'm even listening to, this, to, to these words? Or was I feeling more loving, more whole, more complete, more at peace, more serene than I ever felt before in my life? So I listened to how I felt deep inside. And you know what? The answer is that I felt so complete and so whole. The way I feel, exactly the way I feel, when I turn to my beloved wife, just to use a simple example, and say to her, do you know I love you more than anybody in the whole world? Not only more than anybody in the whole world, more than anybody I have ever loved in my entire life. I love you completely, absolutely, profoundly, and without condition of any kind. And the feeling that wells up inside of me is a feeling of, now that's who I really am. Now that's who I am. And when I read what was coming off the pen in my conversations with God dialogue, I felt exactly the same way. I felt, ah, I'm complete. This makes total sense. And you know what? If I'm wrong about all of this, if I'm going straight to hell, then so be it. But guess what? Millions of people, not a couple thousand, not a couple hundred thousand, but millions of people in 37 languages have felt the same way when they read the messages in conversations with God. And so, and they tell me, I get letters every day. I get messages on my Facebook page every single day of my life. Your books, these books have changed my entire experience of God. So, you know what? 
if we're wrong, we're wrong. But if the other way, the old beliefs are so accurate and so true, why is the world the way it is? We've been practicing those old religious beliefs for thousands of years. Why is the world the way it is? Oh, I get it. Because we actually have not been practicing all the beliefs for thousands of years. For instance, I remember one teacher who said something quite interesting for all of us. He said, love, love, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and do good to those who do evil to you and be a light unto the darkness that you might know who you really are. Have we followed the golden rule? That would be no. Um, <clears throat> no. <laughs> I'm just mesmerized by everything you're saying right now. So <laughs> we have absolutely not <laughs> followed that rule. So the question is, is it possible, just possible, that there's something we don't fully understand here about God, about life, and about ourselves, the understanding of which would change everything. Right. I mean, it's so powerful to just think about, you know, what makes you feel expanded and safe and happy. And, you know, and those are the feeling states that we want to be in. And so I, I, I mean, I've read conversations with God, uh, and it really did profoundly change my life. And I've read hundreds of books. So I, um, was actually, I learned about the book through Vishen, uh, who spoke Vishen is the CEO of, uh, founder of Mind Valley, And he spoke really, um, highly of your book. And so that's how I got, um, introduced to it. And I'm so happy I did. It's really a profound book for the folks who have not yet read it. Um, should definitely check it out. So, Neil, I want to, there's actually a couple things in the book that I found super interesting, but I know that, um, you know, I have so many other questions to ask you, but I, I wanted to dial into the piece uh, in, in Conversations with God where you talk about uh, this concept of your higher self. What, how would you define your higher self? And specifically um, this point in the book where you say, where, where you know, God says, um, Think about your higher self and then think about you and then what's the diff like what's the difference between the two? You know, how far are you removed from your highest self? Well, Abraham Lincoln spoke of this, you know, in the Gettysburg Address, the famous Gettysburg Address, uh, a, a, a part of the history of the United States. Uh, the, the president at the time, Abraham Lincoln, uh, made a wonderful statement in the uh, Gettysburg Address when he talked about the higher angels of our nature, his unforgettable phrase, the higher, the higher angels of our nature. What he was referring to is that part of us that already intuitively knows and deeply understands what pure love is truly all about, that really knows that pure love asks for demands, needs nothing in return. And there's a part of us in every moment of our life 
whatever that moment is presenting, which intuitively and immediately knows what pure love is inviting us to be, to do, and to experience. Let me give you an example when I talk about the higher self. The example that I've often used in my speeches and in my writing is what I call the burning building. Imagine you're walking down the street and you turn to the left and you suddenly notice that the building is on fire. And perhaps you're the first to notice it. And you think to yourself, oh my golly, the building is on fire. Is anybody seeing this? And you kind of like race toward it a little bit and you hear a baby crying <laughs> in that building. And you rush in. Oh my God, there's a baby in there. And you rush in to see if you can find and save that baby. You don't stand there on the sidewalk and weigh the odds of your coming out alive. You don't stand there and go, well, let's see now. There's a 50-50 chance I would not even be able to find the baby. And even if I could, there's no guarantee that I'll get out alive. I'm not sure I should, I should rush in there. Let, let, me think, let me think about this a minute. No, you have no thought for how long you are going to live. Your only thought is how are you going to live, whether it's for another six minutes or another 60 years. Because your first impulse is not survival. Survival is not the basic instinct. That's the lower self that thinks that you are simply your body. Your highest instinct, your basic instinct, is the expression of your true identity, which is divinity. The expression of love. What would love do now? Love would run into that building without even thinking about one's personal safety. I'm gonna save that baby if it in fact is the last thing I do. We don't even think about it. And psychological studies have shown, I'm not making this up. This is a test. This is a question on a test that psychologists use all the time with people for the past 50 years on job applications and certain other places where these kinds of tests are given. And 75, 85, 80, you know, a, a huge percentage of people indicate that they would, of course, rush into the building without even thinking about it. Now, my dear, what I say to humanity is, you have come to you a realization of your highest self when you think of every moment as a burning building moment. That's how I seek to walk through my life when I see every moment, the big moments, the small moments, the important moments, the unimportant moments, as a burning building moment. What if it were all on the line? That is, my sense of self was on the line with everything that I think and say and do right here, right now. As Conversations with God said to me directly, every act is an act of self-definition. Write that on your bathroom mirror in lipstick or soap. Write it on your bathroom mirror so you see it every day. Every act is an act of self-definition. I'm simply here defining myself and then experiencing 
who I imagine myself to be. And the larger part of that process is called evolution. But since I heard these words in conversations with God, my evolutionary process has become a joy, not a burden, not fear-ridden. I've even changed my acronym for fear. My new abbreviation, F-E-A-R, feeling excited and ready. Oh. Wow, Neil, this is uh, super, super inspirational. Thank you. I love that phrase, every act is an act of self-definition. It's like by the choices we make in this life, we're creating our own reality. We're creating our sense of self. Neil, in the book, Conversations with God, you talk about so many important subjects like education, relationships, the need for societal reform, raising children. What topic do you think, you know, coming out of the quarantine is maybe most transformative for you today and maybe one that you could just dial in on and, and, um, speak to us about? It's the question that I raise as the central point of The God Solution, which is why I call the book The God Solution. By the way, I've taken the major ideas in all of the Conversations of God books and brought them to the book The God Solution. It's a very thin book. It's not a big, thick book. It's not like an encyclopedia. You don't have to worry about, oh my God, it'll take me three weeks to read this. The God Solution can be read actually in about an hour and a half or two hours. Very quick read. But what I've done is I created a, the culmination uh, a, a, of all the CWG messages, including the answer to the question you just asked me. And so what I've placed in the God Solution is a, a an articulation of my answer to your question. What is what is the single most important of all the information, of all the messages? that I received in conversations with God is really very simple. I remember, I recall saying to God, when my life was a mess, what does it take to make life work? What have I done to deserve a life of such continuing struggle? Somebody tell me the rules. I'll play. I promise I'll play. Just tell me the, give me the rule book. Just tell me the rules. And after you tell me the rules, don't change them because the rules keep changing from day to day. And I remember the answer that I was given, the dictation that I received to take down in my journal. Neil, it's really very simple. You think your life is about you and your life has nothing to do with you. Your life is about everyone whose life you touch and the way in which you touch it. <sighs> Yet when you understand this, you will find that in the largest sense, your life turns out to be about you because you're the only one in the room. There's nobody else. You think that you're separate from everybody else. But all things are one thing. There is only one thing, one being, one entity, that which is divine. And all things are part 
of the one thing there is. When you understand that, you will understand that in fact, what you do for another, you do for yourself. And what, what you fail to do for another, you fail to do for yourself, which is evidenced, of course, every day on this planet. Just turn on the computer and read the news and you'll see it all over the internet. So if we want to really embark on a new way of living, our opportunity is to embrace and practice the God solution, which is to bring an end to the idea of separation. This is the single most damaging idea that human beings have ever taught themselves. And we keep on teaching each other. I mean, parents pass it on to their children and their children pass it on to their children and so on through the years, the idea of separation. It started with a separation theology, Yasmin, a separation theology. It's a theology that says, God is up there and we're down here and never the twain shall meet except on judgment day when God will judge whether you've been a good enough person to rejoin God in heaven. But until then, you better be clear. God is separate from you. God is up there and you're down here. That's called a separation theology. And you know what? Yes, I mean, it wouldn't be so bad if that was the beginning and the end of it. Okay, fair enough. That's what people believe. Fair enough. But it doesn't end there because a separation theology inevitably creates a separation cosmology that is a cosmological way of experiencing life on earth where we imagine that everything is separate from everything else. We are separate from the environment. We are separate from each other. We are separate from God. And you know what? Even that wouldn't be the worst thing if it began and ended there, a simple belief, but it doesn't because a separation cosmology inevitably produces a separation psychology. That is individual psychological constructions that make us feel alone in the world. I really am out here by myself. Yes, I might have some friends. Maybe I have some wonderful family, but you know, when push comes to shove, when the chips are down, it's me, I'm all alone. I'm separate from everything else. I'm even separate from God, but maybe if I call upon God way up there, he'll do something for me here in this moment. And you know, even that could be tolerated if it began and ended there. But the problem with the separation psychology is that it inevitably produces a separation sociology. That is organizations, states, countries, races, religions that declare they are separate from each other. So we've created separate little groups, conservatives and liberals, Democrats and Republicans, rich and poor, blacks and whites, gays and straights, Christians and Jews, Muslims and Buddhists, people of no religion at all, separating ourselves into groups. And you know what the problem with that is? It doesn't stop there because a separation sociology inevitably produces a separation pathology. Mm pathological behaviors of self-destruction, observable on this planet, wherever you look and wherever we look in our history from the beginning of time. So we see that a separation 
theology creates a separation in cosmology, which creates a separation in psychology, which creates a separation in sociology, which creates a separation in pathology, pathological behaviors within which we live today. The solution, the God solution, reject at last the idea of separation. Wow. It's so simple, yes. I mean, it's so simple. Yeah, it's uh, really a powerful, powerful point. And I think, like, we tend to live in this world that's like a win-lose universe. And I think the winner takes all. And I think that's what we're seeing playing out in culture. And, but we, and we would never do that if we thought that, that we were all one. Exactly. We don't do that with hopefully members of our own family. I mean, people in our own household, we don't say to, you know, our children, sorry, I'd love to have you have some dessert. Mom made a wonderful apple pie tonight, but I'm eating it all. <laughs> you're getting none of it because I'm the winner and you're the loser. <laughs> we don't do that in our families. So the problem is we think that no one else belongs to our family. No, you don't understand, Neil. You don't understand. You're a Democrat and I'm a Republican. You're the bad guy and I'm the good guy. God's on my side. Try to get it straight, Neil. Try to get it straight. Mm, yeah, wow. Uh, I think that's like the single most powerful point. Um, even in, in my life, the shift of thinking of a, a universal cosmological point of view, like how is this going to benefit everyone rather than how is this going to benefit me? But I think so much of us are just trained in culture to adopt this model of, of you know, winner takes all and, you know, this... Darwinian model of, of reality. And I love the the part in the book where you, you speak about having like a united federation uh, where all the countries come together into this one union. I thought that was such a powerful um, idea. And I, you know, and you spoke about how the states of the United States came together as the United States and how imagine if the U.S. had just been these individual states, right? Like we would have a lot less um, greatness that has come out of this country, a lot less economic power, um, programs, all those things. Well, we're tearing ourselves apart in the United States right now because we've changed our idea about what leadership is. We've decided that leadership is about bullying, insulting, shaming, embarrassing, and destroying demonizing anyone who disagrees with us. We now call that leadership. Yeah. Wow. Neil, I, I have so many other questions, but we are um, at time. But I just have a couple, two more questions for you. Um, what has been the biggest surprise for you as you've been on this journey? I mean, you've written your 39th book. The biggest surprise has been how many millions of people agree with me. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> and what do you want to tell our listeners about their well-being and just in general, what's sort of your main takeaway and what's next for you? The main takeaway is it is possible to solve humanity's problems and to meet our biggest challenges by embracing the God solution. I really hope that people will read The God Solution. And if everyone thinks that I'm really shilling here and trying to sell a few more books, wrong. I have put the entire book for free on the internet, on my Facebook page. You can read the whole book without spending a nickel. So it's not even about selling books. It's about 
sharing an idea that could change people's lives mm, Wow! overnight. What's next for me is to sit back and see how all that goes and then throw myself wholeheartedly into whatever arises as the appropriate, most exciting, most joyous, and best next step. I don't try to predict that. I let life show it to me. Wow, Neil, this has been such an inspiring conversation. And where can people find you? We'll, of course, put your website in the show notes. And of course, The God Solution is on uh, Amazon. You can find it for free, as Neil just mentioned. Are there any other resources? I know you're on social media, you mentioned. Which social media outlets? CWGConnect.com is how you can stay connected with the energy of these messages and with me. I'm there three times a day. Uh, There's a column there called Ask Neil, where people ask me the kinds of questions you've asked me and others as well, diving deeply into the material and the messages. So the address again, CWG of course stands for Conversations with God. So the full address is cwgconnect.com. That's how to stay connected. Amazing. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time, Neil. I'm just so grateful that we've had this time on the show. I'm going to re-listen to this episode a couple times because I know there are so many amazing truths in here that are really going to help me in my own life, and I'm sure for everyone who's listening. So thank you so much. You're welcome, Yasmin. Thank you for the opportunity and for the invitation. Goodbye for now. For our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about the meaning of life and universal truths with Neil Donald Walsh. You can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Thanks again.